0: I am pleased to uh, be able to share with you guys this morning. If you would uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and and turn to Galatians chapter 5 for me, Um, and then also uh, Mark Romans chapter 7. And uh, as you're turning there, um, just to kind of catch us up if you're joining us for the first time, we're in this series called Hindsight 2020. And uh, for the last several weeks, uh, we've been walking through Proverbs chapter 30. We've been looking at the the words of Agur, and he's, um, over the last few weeks, he's been looking at, he's used some things that he's seen in nature um, and brought about lessons for us. Um, In the last several weeks, we look in, in verses 24 through 28, and we see four things that he says are small but exceedingly wise. He says that uh, the ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. And the lizard you can take in your hands, yet is in king's palaces. And he's taking these four small things and showing how wise they are. In the last few weeks, we've talked about ants, we've talked about rock badgers, and this morning, we're going to talk about locusts. But before we talk about locusts, I, I want to begin in Galatians chapter 5 because I want, I want this to be kind of our framework for where we're going to go this morning. If I want it to be kind of the lenses that we're going to put on to see the text as we work through it today. So read this with me in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in, in verse 16. He says, by, He says, "...but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 22, he he outlines the desires now of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. And then 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So here he lays out what are not two natures. We as as people, we we don't have a flesh and then a spirit. We have one nature We have a sin nature. We are born into this. Uh, King David in Psalm 51 says that surely I was born into sin. I was conceived into sin. It's recognizing that from birth we have a sin nature. We are prone to wonder from God. We're prone to rebel against God. We are prone to sin. We were brought forth in iniquity from birth. If you don't believe that, think of the first time if you have children that your child disobeyed you. Think of the first time that they turned around and told you no. And the question I have for you is that did you teach them to do that to you? You did not. Right? It is built in. Right? We have one nature and that is a sin nature. And that nature is opposed to the Spirit of God. Okay, so there's our lens. And then, and then Romans 7, Paul says it like this to the church at Rome. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we have one nature, and that is a sin nature, and it is opposed to God's Spirit. So I want to pray, and then we're going to begin unpacking with those lenses on our lesson for today. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come and to to share your word uh, with your people. And I pray for us this morning, Lord. I pray for the people of God, Lord, to hear from you, Lord, your truth, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would come to a place in our hearts, Lord, where we would respond to that truth. And I just pray that you you help us to walk through that um, this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So now the locust. I've done a good deal of research this week on uh, the locust. And uh, I found that a locust is actually a grasshopper, if you didn't know that. There are hundreds of species of grasshopper, and some of them are actually considered to be locusts. Um, So the question that I had then was, if it's a grasshopper, but then it's a a locust, what is it then that makes a locust a locust? Well, here it is. The locust possesses a natural, though not fully understood, superpower to undergo a change or a remarkable switch in its development. So grasshoppers mostly exist in what is called the grasshopper phase. If you didn't know that, there is a grasshopper phase. They're solitary. They're green. They're really unremarkable, right? They're unnoticeable. We see grasshoppers, but there's nothing about a grasshopper that's just like, you like, oh my goodness, there's a grasshopper, or there's not a, oh my goodness, it's a grasshopper, unless you're you know a five-year-old girl or maybe a thirty-five-year-old girl. <laughs> but nonetheless, there's nothing really that remarkable about a grasshopper. We don't view them as such, but solitary, green, and unremarkable. However, when environmental, environmental conditions are right, usually around heavy periods of heavy rainfall or a lot of moisture, uh, typically following prolonged periods of drought, a change occurs. Now, they begin to go through a remarkable and dramatic switch in the way in their physiology. Their numbers begin to increase, and when their numbers increase, they begin to become aware of one another. Um, Rick Overton, he says this about this. This is known as the gregarious phase. So you have the grasshopper phase, then you have the gregarious phase. And at this point, this is what he says happens. And he's uh, with the Arizona State University's Global Locust Initiative. That thing exists. There's a Global Locust Initiative. But you'll see why here in a moment. Um, so he says this, that they change their physiology, their brain changes, their colorization changes, their body size changes. Instead of repelling one another, they become attracted to one another. And if those conditions persist in the environment, they start to march together in coordinated formations across the landscape. That's interesting. So there's no longer a sense of self. The gregarious phase, that title in itself, removes a sense of self. They become social, and they begin to multiply sometimes 20-fold 20-fold in a matter of months. In February of this year, I found this interesting. As um, a global pandemic is beginning to uh, kick off on our planet, in East Africa, most notably Kenya, there is a swarm of locusts that that they believe now has broken records in the country of Kenya. A swarm of locusts descends upon that nation, and it's said that that swarm was 25 miles By 37 miles wide. That's 930 square miles. That's a swarm of locusts larger than Van Zandt County. With densities from 40 to 80 million per half square mile. Wrap your mind around that for a second. A swarm of insects, locusts, which used to be grasshoppers, not really remarkable, not really noticeable, but all of a sudden there's 40 to 80 million of them per half square mile taking up an area larger than Van Zandt County. This this swarm, whenever locusts swarm like this, they are virtually a force that is unstoppable. Just There's, there's nothing, there's an initiative, a global locust initiative that is created in different parts of our world to try and Predict when this is going to happen so that they can try and do something about it. But when a swarm of this size happens, it moves and it completely decimates every bit of vegetation that it comes in contact with. But science is not exactly sure, they cannot exactly determine what it is about the locust that draws them to one another. Why all of a sudden a solitary creature now becomes acutely aware of those that are around it? They band together and, like a locust that has no king, they march in rank. And they just take over. But what is it that actually draws them together? Now in the Old Testament, we, we see locusts typically in a negative light. Right? They're, they're typically spoken of as, as um, uh, how I said vessels of judgment, so to speak. Right? We see uh, God use locusts um, in... Uh, as one of the plagues against the nation of Egypt, to get Pharaoh to soften his heart, to let his people go, God's people go. But then we also see uh, the Lord use locusts to bring judgment on his own people, Israel, whenever they've rebelled against him. In Joel, he describes locusts in this way as God's great army. In Joel chapter 2, he says, Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons, and they are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run along the walls. They climb on the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw. They're shining. But then he says, I will restore you, to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. And you see this picture as God describes this speechy species on, of creature on his earth that is this small. But when they band together, he uses them as his great army to do what he would have done. Matthew Henry notes this, he says, When he pleases, he musters, he marshals them and wages war by them as he did upon Egypt. They go forth, all of them gathered together. And then he says this, Sense of weakness should, should engage us to keep together that we may strengthen the hands of one another. So Matthew Henry, he says this about locusts. He makes this This connection, he draws this connection between what locusts do, how God uses them, but then he implies it, it seems, to people. And then he says, sense of weakness should engage us to keep together, that way we may strengthen the hands of one another. And when I read that, then all of a sudden this locust, and like we've been doing the last couple weeks with the ant, with the rock badger, but we have a very good object lesson for ourselves. An object lesson that I, this morning, would like to apply to not just individuals, but apply to God's church. What can we learn from a locust that can be applied to God's church and how the church should be moving forward? But a once solitary, unnoticeable creature undergoes a change and begins to behave in a manner completely different than what it did before. And then collectively becomes a literal, unstoppable force on our planet. Now, the question that I have is, does that describe the church in our culture today? And the answer is no. To me, no. But the second question is, is it supposed to? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. And here's why. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and I'll give you a second to get there. I'll I'll go there with you. Matthew chapter 16. And we're gonna start, we're gonna read this in um starting verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. I still hear pages turning, I'll give you a second. So then Peter, or this 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 happens here. It says uh, Matthew says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And then he says this, For flesh and blood Has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven. And you can underline that. That is a huge piece. Of theology or doctrine right there. That statement right there is what is going to unpack the rest of our morning. Peter replied to him. You are Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus told him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then Jesus says this to him, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it says, you are Peter. The name Peter means rock. In the Greek, it is kaphos, it is rock. Jesus says, you are the rock on, upon which I'm going to build my church. And that is the first time in your Bible that you see the word church used. Ecclesia, which means the called out ones. Before the church even has begun. I'm not sure of exactly how long before the church is born does Jesus say this to Peter. Upon you, I'm going to build my church. But then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He does not say that, that the church will withstand the assault of the gates of hell. He doesn't say that Satan is going to attack you and you're going to be able to withstand that attack. He says, no, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. It is as if he's saying that the church that I'm going to build upon you, Peter, is going to be an offensive church. You're going to be on offense. We're not going to play back on defense. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is going to move in such a way that one day we're going to storm the gates of hell. And when I look at Joel and the way he describes locusts, they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. And I view the church in some way storming the gates of hell and the gates not prevailing against the church. The church is meant to move and in some way be unstoppable that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the picture of the church. When I think of the locusts banding together and they marching in rank and they completely annihilate and decimate everything that's in front of them. Every bit of vegetation And there's nothing that can be done to really stop them when this happens. That is the picture of the church and what the church should be doing when it moves forward through this world. Not to destroy, but to bring about its purpose and God's purpose. And then in Acts 2, we can read of 120 people praying together in a room. And then something remarkable happens. These 120 people undergo a remarkable transformation. They become something different. They become something new. And upon that transformation, Peter goes out and he delivers this this message, this sermon on the day of Pentecost. With such depth and such truth that people, it says, the scripture says that people were cut to the heart by what he said. He preached Christ and he preached Christ, crucified, and people were cut to the heart. And they responded to him. Brothers, what shall we do, they asked. And he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then it says that 3,000 people were added that day. Of 120 people, 3,000 came about. That is 25-fold multiplication in a day. That is the birth of the church. That is a story that I never tire of saying. Most of the time when I say it, it is much longer in length of telling that story. But that is the birth of our church. That is the culmination of Jesus telling Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. Then Peter goes out in Acts 2, he gives that sermon and 3,000 people that day, 25-fold, come to know Christ. And then what follows then, as you see in verses 42 through 47, if you've been to group Link, you've heard this. This is the picture of community that we have here at Stone Point Church that many churches have. But how people began to respond to that truth. They began selling possessions. They were distributing proceeds. They were ready and willing at any need when it arose to give away and sell what they had to provide for that need that arose among them. They attended temple together. They broke bread together. And in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, it says that the Lord added to their number daily. But the question here is why? Why does this happen? What was it about these people that drew people in, that drew people in to come and see? Todd Wagner, in his book, Come and See, describes this new community of people in this way. He says that they were biblical, they were blessed, they were bonded, caring, Christ-exalting, committed, compassionate, connected, consistent, and creative. He says they're dedicated, devoted, discerning, disciplined, driven, effective, encouraging, energized, evangelist, exciting, Engaging, faithful, focused, friendly, fun, fired up, generous, godly, and growing. And he continues. We are humble, hungry, hospitable, intentional, inspiring, intimate, intense, joyful, like-minded, loving, magnetic, miraculous, motivated, neighborly, obedient, ordained, others-minded, passionate, powerful, praising, prayerful, proactive, productive, progressive, pure, purposeful, redeeming, radical, real, relationally minded, relevant, respected. We're sacrificial, we're safe, we're scary. He says we're selfish, we're scripture loving, we're servant-hearted, we're servant-minded, we're sold out, spirit-filled, sincere, submissive, tenacious, teachable, transformed, trustworthy, thankful, unified, unselfish, unspoiled, unwavering, wholehearted, and wise." The locust is one of four things that Agur says is small but exceedingly wise. And the question then is: Is out of this list of things that he outlines, all these adjectives that describe these people, would you say, "I don't want to be a part of anybody that fits any of that description"? Generally, no. The church was attractive. People responded. I want to be part of that. Everything that people began to look for in this life, they began to find in these people because this is how they responded and began to accept one another. But then he addresses the problem that we have today. And I'll have this on the screen for you. He says, The problem isn't that God has stopped being in the business of changing the world by changing lives. The problem is that we have gotten into the business of doing His business our way, not being people of the way. I believe herein lies the problem that we have. In a 20-year in study um, that the Barna Group did uh, from 2000 to uh, 2020, it was published in March of this year. So note that these are pre-COVID numbers. These are pre-shelter-in-place. They're pre-social distancing numbers that... I'm about to give you uh, really quickly. So, from 2000 to 2020, they found in this study that practicing Christians, and practicing Christians being those that believe that faith is is important, and acting out that faith is important, that they would attend uh, church services monthly, is what they consider a practicing Christian. But that number decreased in 20 years from 45% to 25% of our population. Today, according to these numbers, a quarter of our nation is a practicing Christian. One quarter, down from just under half 20 years ago. And not surprising, the number of non-practicing Christians has risen from 35% to 43%. And then non-Christians has risen 10% from 20 to 30% in the last 10 years. All of which, the main Descent or or ascent of these numbers occurred around the year 2012, but practicing Christians went down to a quarter of our population from 93 to 2020. Um, they found that one third fewer Americans attend church weekly. That's from 45 percent down to 29 percent, and it showed that numbers still they 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 held steady. Uh, and peaked around 20, uh, 2009 and around 2009 at 48%, and then decreased rapidly around 2012. For those that, that, that believe that, that reading the Bible was important, and they read their Bible within the last seven days, during the same time period actually increased by 1%, from 34% to 35%. So a third of the country over the last 20 years says that they read their Bible you know, within the last seven days. But there was a steady increase up to, again, around 2012. And then the number came back down to 35%. And then prayer, for those that would say that they have prayed in the last seven days, from 96 to 2010, that number hovered around 83% of the population said that they prayed within the last seven days. And then that number declined in the last 10 years down to 69%. And again, most notably around 2012. I don't know what happened in 2012 that caused all of these things to decline and go down. I think the the world was supposed to end in 2012 but it didn't so maybe people had a false sense of security and we're still here so we're going to we'll be all right. But in the last 20 years practicing Christians has declined to a quarter of the population. But out of this based on this data you could say that private practices of faith such as prayer and Bible reading have remained relatively, relatively the same. It's church attendance Practicing Christians in church attendance is what's really gone down. But the question is why? What has occurred to where people, and this is pre-COVID numbers, where people will, on their own, they'll read their Bible, they'll say, they say they pray, but they neglect to meet together with the people of God on a regular basis. It's as if the Christian is saying, that's no longer important to me, by and large. And the question is why? What has happened to cause that in our culture and in our day? I believe God's word provides that answer. All we need that pertains to life and godliness is right here. And I believe that he provides an answer. If you would go to Ephesians chapter 4, turn there with me. And um, beginning in verse 17, uh, Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So he describes the Gentile, but in an effect, he, deci- he describes a nature He describes the sin nature in the Gentiles. Do not go back. You must no longer walk that way in the futility of the mind. Don't be darkened in your understanding. Don't be alienated from God any longer. Don't become callous. Don't give yourself up to sensuality and greed. He says that's not the way you learn Christ. But how is it then? How did they learn Christ? How did you and I learn Christ? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? It says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You and I came to realization of who Christ is is by God. Because our sin nature is opposed to God. It does not accept the things of God. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says this. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what he's saying then is that, that our sin nature, the natural person, will never accept the things of God that are spiritually discerned. It is God then who brings about a recognition of who we are and our need for him. And then we're then able to respond to that. But Paul continues in Ephesians 4, he says that that, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Then he says this in 22, here's our answer. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That sin nature, our own desires, what causes quarrels and fights among you, James says, is it not your own passions and your own desires that wage war within you? You have and you do not have, so so you murder and you covet and you seek to take. It is your own desires that are deceitful. They promise one thing, but they deliver another. Our sin nature promises fulfillment, but it will ultimately deliver death. But then he says in 23, And then you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then you are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then therefore, having, putting away, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So you remember the locust? This creature that underwent this remarkable change. All of a sudden the old was gone and the new came. Its entire behavior began to change. But the difference in a locust and the people of God and humans who have a sin nature, who still struggle in the flesh, the locust never returns to being a grasshopper. For the rest of its life, it does not go back to being a grasshopper. It continues on as a locust for the rest of its life. The problem with us is we put off the old self, we put on the new, but then sometimes we come to a point where we start acting like the old. We have one nature, and it is opposed to the Spirit of God. And Paul says, you put off the old self. That belongs to your former manner of life. That is what is corrupt, that is what deceives you, and then you're to be re- re- renewed in the spirit of your mind. The things that we put in our minds are the things that are going to drive us forward. We have to change the way we think. We do that by the Spirit of God, and we put on that new self. We remain in that new self. Paul tells the Corinthian church in Second Timothy's like Second Timothy, Second Corinthians like this and. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regard Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then he says, all of this is from God. We have one nature. And that nature sets us apart from God. That nature disables us from doing anything godly. So it takes God to bring about a realization of that nature and our need for Him. And in that realization, He gives us Jesus. Here's your example. Here's your Savior. Put your faith and your trust in Him. If you were in here this morning... And you would say that you have believed in your heart and you confessed your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead. You are saved. You are now a Christian. You are now a Christ follower. That is who you are. The old is gone. That is the new creation that has come. And he says, walk in newness of life. But all of this is from God. God is the thing that binds us together. It is His Spirit that gives us recognition of our brother and sister next to us that we are no longer solitary. We are now social in every way. The Christian life is never to go back to being alone and isolated over here. You're not going to be green again. You're not going to be unnoticeable. You're not meant to be unremarkable You're meant to be the most remarkable thing on planet Earth because you're created in the image of God. Now you're saved by His Son. You're created in His likeness to do what He would have you do, and that is to move through this world to a point where the gates of hell would no longer prevail against His church. But that comes about by being the new creation. But we have one nature. Paul says, Back in Romans chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is him who sets us apart, who makes us new, and sets us on a path of godliness and righteousness and holiness so that we look different in a world that desperately needs him. We look at the state of our country. Is it shocking The direction that we're headed in church. Is it shocking to us to see the results of the last week? And what could likely come to pass in the next two to three years. Is it shocking when the church of God makes up a quarter of our population? No. That stirs me to come to that realization. We're not an unstoppable force. But what is that? How do we respond? What are we to do? Does that mean that we begin protesting? We begin picket signing outside of everything that doesn't line up with the word of God? No. We can see what protests do in our day and age. What they really begin to breed. They don't breed love and truth. What comes out of that is hate and discord. I'm not saying that we shouldn't protest things. You look at the Protestant Reformation. Protesting brought about Reform. But what were they protesting? Martin Luther was protesting against a church that was in a dictatorship and church authority having its people do things that were completely unbiblical, that went contrary to the word of God. That's what the Catholic church, Roman Catholic church, did to people. People didn't even have the word of God. Martin Luther said no. So he protested for reform and reform came. The Bible began to be put in the people of God's hand. The word of God went to the people of God. And then reform happened. But in our day and age, we're not protesting against the government that's making us do something that, is across, that goes against the Bible. There are policies that are being made that go against Scripture, but you can choose whether or not you're going to agree with them or do them. But the government is not saying you're going to do this and it's against the Word of God. No, so that's not what we protest. So how do we respond then, church? It starts with us. Ephesians five, chapter fifteen, verse fifteen and sixteen. It says this. I don't think I have it on the screen, but Paul says, "Look carefully then how you walk, not as an unwise, but a, but a, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil." Paul says, "Look to how you are walking." Remember the lens that we put on at the beginning of this. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The church is declining because we are becoming more and more about ourselves and not about the work of God and the people of God and saving the world around us. We're consumed with ourselves. We're gratifying the desires of our flesh before we're being led by the Spirit. And he says, walk in the Spirit. You will not gratify those desires. And then we will bind ourselves together and we will move in a direction that begins to change trends. But what do we see right now really happening? Policy is being changed because other groups of people are clinging together with a clear focus in mind. And they are moving forward. You think about certain social issues and things that are happening in our culture. It's because other groups of people are coming together with a clear focus central focus. They're not fighting each other. They're not biting and devouring one another. They're unified in their mission, and they are literally changing policy that goes against the word of God. What is the difference between them and us is we're in complete discord by and large because we're more consumed with us, and that's tough. That's tough even for me as I think through that and my own desires and the things that I want and the things that I go after. Versus the Word of God and walking in the Spirit to not gratify my flesh. And when we collectively do that, we become an unstoppable force. That is the people of God that is attractive and draws people in. So we may may we begin to walk as not as unwise but as wise. Let me pray for us, Lord. I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word as always. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the challenge and the conviction within even my own heart and the things that I desire that I can put above your desires for me. The things that I can chase after that are contrary to your word and contrary to what you would have me to do. Lord, and I pray for our church, Lord, that we would come to a point where we're looking at ourselves That we don't blame shift everything wrong with our lives and in our country. And that we would look at ourselves and see what we can begin doing for our own heart to change our heart, Lord, to affect our family, then to affect our community, Lord. It's it's from the, the center of us out. It's not from us. It's not from out to try and change within, Lord. I just pray that you, you work on our hearts and work on my heart, Lord, to look to you, Lord, to walk with your spirit, to not gratify my own selfish desires. Then we may be may we become attractive, Lord, um, to show people your love and your kindness and your goodness and your salvation. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, and I just pray for your church and I pray for us as we go forth um, from here this morning. It's in your name. Amen.